You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 163, The Battle of Germantown. Two weeks ago, General Howe entered Philadelphia, capping a months-long campaign that began in New York, then down to Maryland, then overland march to Philadelphia. Howe had outmaneuvered Washington's army and taken the city without any real last stand after defeating the Continentals at Brandywine. Now, we moved away last week where we caught up with what was going on with Burgoyne's army in New York during this same time. So today, we're going back to Philadelphia to see Washington's response to Howe's capture of the city. Although the British general had reached his goal, he had left General Burgoyne swinging in the wind without any support in upstate New York. But that was not of primary concern to General Howe. Of primary concern was the fact that he still had not opened up the Delaware River, meaning his invading army could not link up with the Navy and reconnect with outside supply lines. General Howe left the bulk of his army in Germantown. Today, Germantown is part of Philadelphia. However, in 1777, when the northern border of Philadelphia was Vine Street in what is today Center City, Germantown was still several miles north of the city. As you might discern from the name, it was settled by immigrants from the Palatine region in what is today southwestern Germany. By 1777, the Germans had lived in the area for several generations, but still spoke the German language rather than English. Most of the German people who came to Pennsylvania were members of pacifist groups who had fled the nearly continual state of warfare that defined much of Europe at this time. They had no particular affinity for the militaristic Hessians who were fighting with the British. At the same time, though, as pacifists, most did not join the armed opposition of the Patriot Movement either. Some had fled the area in advance of the army's occupation. However, many more stayed put and tried to make the best of life under military occupation. General Howe, with General Cornwallis, went to Philadelphia with nearly half the army. Howe would end up occupying a house on Market Street, which had once been the residence of Lieutenant Governor Richard Penn, and most recently that of Pennsylvania General John Cadwallader, living there before the British occupied the city. However, at this point, Howe maintained a headquarters at the home of James Logan, well north of Philadelphia and about a mile south of Germantown. Howe's first order of business was to open up the Delaware River so he could reconnect with the British Navy and the outside world. He had to deploy a brigade of 3,000 soldiers to march all the way back to Head of Elk, Maryland, and escort more supplies back to Philadelphia overland 
because the Patriots still controlled the Delaware River. He also had to prepare for an attack by the Continentals, which he expected to come most likely from the north at Germantown. In Philadelphia, Howe made every attempt to prevent looting or plundering by British soldiers. He still wanted to win over the locals and be accepted as a liberator, not a conqueror. Howe needed to establish local support so that he could at some point move his regular army onto other cities in North America. Almost as soon as Howe marched into Philadelphia, Washington was planning to attack. On September 26th, the same day Howe marched into Philadelphia, Washington moved his Continentals to Pennybacker's Mill, today what is called Schwenksville, just a little over 20 miles from Germantown. There, he consolidated his forces, reporting on the 28th that he had 8,000 Continentals and another 3,000 militia at his camp. The next day, the Continentals marched about five miles closer to the enemy, and a few days later moved another three miles closer, putting them about 16 miles away from the enemy. Washington's intelligence indicated that less than half of the British army was camped at Germantown. Actually, it was considerably more than half, but Washington's total force still slightly outnumbered the roughly 9,000 enemy soldiers camped at Germantown. The British had laid out their camp in a line forming east to west. On the east, or British right flank, camped battalions commanded by Generals James Grant and Edward Matthew. On the British left flank were battalions under the commands of Generals Gray, Agnew, Stern, and Knipehausen's Hessians. The line extended all the way to the Schuylkill River, where Hessian Jaegers held the far end of the left flank. Washington, as he liked to do, developed a rather complex plan of attack, dividing his forces into four separate divisions, each approaching the enemy from a different direction. General John Sullivan, who was still awaiting court-martial for his actions on Long Island and at Brandywine, commanded the first column, supported by Anthony Wayne's brigade, at least those who survived the Paoli Massacre. Lord Sterling and General Maxwell would follow Sullivan's column as a reserve force. General Nathaniel Green commanded a second column, which was the largest battalion of the group, containing about two-thirds of the total Continental Army. His force would attack the British right flank, commanded by Generals Grant and Matthews. A third column made up of Maryland and New Jersey militia under the command of General William Smallwood, who, as you may recall, had lost half of his command due to desertion and failed to engage the enemy at the Paoli Massacre, would march to the east and attempt to move around to the rear of the British right flank. A fourth column, commanded by General John Armstrong, would march to the west to try to move behind the British left flank. Washington ordered all four columns to engage in a night march so that all would be in position for an attack beginning at 5 a.m. on the morning of October 4th. From there, the forces would converge from their different positions on the British camp with a bayonet charge. Before I get to the battle itself, I want to give a quick background on two of the generals I just mentioned. I mentioned William Smallwood a few weeks ago during the Paoli Massacre. Smallwood came from a prosperous Maryland family which owned a plantation, 
As a boy, his family sent him to England for his education, where he attended Eton. And we think he may have actually been a classmate of Barry St. Ledger while he was there. Smallwood returned home to run the family plantation. He also served in the Maryland Assembly, like his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather before him. Coming from a family of wealth and status within the colony, Smallwood also served in the colonial militia, and during the French and Indian War served as an officer on several campaigns. In 1775, Smallwood had attended the Maryland Convention and was an early advocate of armed resistance to British policies. When Maryland sent soldiers, Smallwood was among the first to go to New York as a colonel. He served on Long Island and was wounded at the Battle of White Plains in 1776. After that, he returned home to recuperate and did not rejoin the army for some time. During his convalescence, Congress promoted him to general. When the British landed at Head of Elk in Maryland in August of 1777, General Smallwood decided it was time to get back into the fight and raised a regiment of 2,000 Maryland militia. These were the troops that scattered when the British attacked General Wayne's Continentals at Paoli. He recovered about half of his army that had not run home and joined up with Washington's Continentals for the continuing fight. Washington then ordered Smallwood to take his division on the far American left to go around the British right flank and attack their rear. The other division commander that I hadn't yet mentioned was General John Armstrong. Born in Ireland, Armstrong was educated as a civil engineer. He came to Pennsylvania in 1740 as a surveyor for the Penn family. One of the areas he surveyed became the new town of Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And I guess he liked it there so much that he settled there and started a family. During the French and Indian War, Armstrong served as a colonel in the Pennsylvania militia. He had led 2,700 militia soldiers during the Forbes expedition to recapture Fort Duquesne in what is today Pittsburgh from the French. During this expedition, he served alongside fellow militia colonel George Washington. By 1775, Armstrong was a brigadier general with the Pennsylvania militia and an outspoken patriot. When Pennsylvania joined the fight in early 1776, Armstrong received a commission as brigadier general in the Continental Army. He put his engineering experience to work, setting up defenses at Charleston, South Carolina, prior to the British attack on Fort Sullivan. Armstrong then resigned his Continental Commission less than a year after he received it to become a major general in command of the Pennsylvania State Militia. He commanded the left flank of the American line at Brandywine. Since the British attacked the right flank at Brandywine, he didn't see much action that day, but he did have to retreat with the rest of the army after the American right flank collapsed. At Germantown, Washington gave Armstrong command of the division on the American right flank with orders to get behind the enemy's flank and attack. That night, the troops struggled to get in position over dark and unfamiliar terrain. The first Americans to make contact with the enemy were from the head of General Sullivan's column, led by French General Thomas Conway. The Americans began a firefight with British pickets, who did have time to fire a signal gun and warn the British Army of the attack that had just begun. 
British Colonel Thomas Musgrave of the 40th Regiment of Regulars commanded the defense against Conway's attack. Both sides poured in reinforcements. Anthony Wayne's Continentals reportedly fought viciously and shouted, Remember Paoli, as they ruthlessly cut down the enemy, even men trying to surrender. General Howe personally rushed toward the sound of gunfire, confronting his retreating soldiers. He ordered the men to form and told them that it was just a scouting party. About the same time he said that, an American cannon hit the tree under which Howe was sitting atop his horse, making clear that this was no scouting party. At sunrise, a dense fog remained over the battlefield, preventing both sides from determining where anyone was and leading to great confusion. As Musgrave's regulars fell back against the much larger attacking Continental force, he ordered six of his companies to take shelter inside a large stone house owned by Pennsylvania Chief Justice Benjamin Chu. As the rest of the British line retreated, the British inside the Chu house became isolated. Initially, several of Washington's officers proposed leaving one regiment to keep the defenders of the Chu house from moving and continuing on with the main attack. General Knox, however, objected. He thought it was an error to leave a force in their rear. He proposed taking the house before moving on, and Washington agreed. The Americans sent an officer under a flag of truce to demand surrender of the home's occupants. The British defenders fired on the officer and killed him. Next, Knox brought up several field cannons that could smash the doors and windows, but were not big enough to penetrate the thick stone walls of the house. The Americans charged the house, but were shot down. A few did make it to the house and got inside, but were quickly cut down by the defenders. During the assault, Washington's aide, Lieutenant Colonel John Lawrence, the son of Continental Congress Delegate Henry Lawrence, was wounded. Another officer, John Marshall, the future Chief Justice, who had received a minor wound at Brandywine, received a more serious one in the assault on the Chew House. The attempt to take the house went on for over an hour. More American regiments, drawn by the sound of gunfire, marched toward the house. General Adam Stephen, who was the advance of General Green's main column, marched his battalion over to the house as well. General Greene's main column of Continentals was behind schedule and had not yet reached the battlefield. General Wayne had advanced beyond the Chew House, but hearing the firefight continuing there, believed that Sullivan must be having some trouble and turned his men around to assist. In the fog, Stevens' regiment and Wayne's regiment saw each other, thought that each must be the enemy, and began firing on each other, causing both brigades to flee in a panic. As Sullivan's division continued its frustratingly ineffective assault on the Chew House, British generals Gray and Grant led their regulars to attack Sullivan on both his right and left flanks. Most of Sullivan's Continentals then feared they were being surrounded in the fog, so they too panicked and fled the battlefield. When Green's force finally arrived, it struck the British right and forced back the defenders. The Americans soon found themselves in the British camp as the regulars retreated in the face of superior numbers. 
Green's men had smashed the British right flank with fair success. But with Sullivan's divisions already dispersed, the British who had deployed there now turned on Green's flank. Some of Green's force had fallen out of formation as soldiers took the opportunity to loot the enemy camp. When the British counterattacked, the men were not in their lines and ended up fleeing the field as well. One of Green's divisions, led by Pennsylvania General Peter Muhlenberg, pushed deep into British lines, only to find himself cut off from the rest of his own army. His division then had to turn around and fight its way back through the British lines to join the rest of the Continentals. One of Muhlenberg's regiments, the 9th Virginia, found itself isolated and surrounded by the British counterattack, forcing almost the entire 400-man regiment to surrender. The remaining bulk of Green's force retreated to safety. Colonel Pulaski, who now commanded a cavalry regiment that was being held in the rear, when the British attacked, his men fled on their horses and ended up riding right into Green's retreating infantry. The infantry thought the cavalry were British soldiers and scattered. Green then had to struggle to restore order and continue the retreat. By this time, British General Cornwallis had brought up even more fresh battalions of regulars from Philadelphia. Cornwallis pursued the retreating Americans for about eight miles, but gave up his pursuit. The retreating Americans marched a full 24 miles back to Pennybacker's Mill, where they had camped two days earlier. Most of the army, between the march to Germantown and the retreat, marched over 40 miles that day and night, in addition to fighting the pitched battle. Many of the men had not slept for nearly two days, having marched out the previous night to get into position for the attack. To give an example of how tired they were, there's a story of General Muhlenberg during the retreat. He tried to get his horse to jump over a fence, but the horse refused. As Muhlenberg paused for a few minutes while some soldiers broke down the fence to let him pass, he actually fell asleep in his saddle in the middle of the battle. He woke up a minute later when a bullet whistled past his ear and he heard the screams of the enemy charging his position. Over the course of the battle, General Stephen was found at one point nearly passed out on the battlefield. He would later be accused of drunkenness and would actually ultimately lose his command as a result. He would face a court-martial and be cashiered a short time later. It's not clear if he actually had been drinking, but probably not to excess. His condition probably had more to do with exhaustion and sleep deprivation. And he was not the only general in this condition. General Conway was found asleep in a barn, and General Pulaski was also caught napping in a farmhouse during the retreat. Now, also, as part of this retreat, Continental General Francis Nash used his reserve force as a rear guard against the advancing British. I haven't mentioned much about Nash before, but he was from North Carolina and had only received his promotion to Brigadier General a few months earlier. He had a long history, though, of supporting the Patriot cause. He had been an officer at the Battle of Alamance before the actual outbreak of the war back in 1771, and he had also served as an officer in North Carolina in the early years of the war, being present at the Battle of Morse Creek Bridge and also at the attack at Fort Sullivan in Charleston, South Carolina. After his promotion to general in February 1777, 
Nash remained in the South trying to recruit more volunteers. However, when the more senior general from North Carolina, General James Moore, fell ill and died in April, Nash took command of the North Carolina regiments that were fighting with Washington. He had commanded those regiments at Brandywine and, as I said, had been held in reserve at Germantown. But as the Continentals retreated, Nash saw his chance to get involved. He advanced his men to buy time for the rest of the retreating army. In his attempt to slow the British advance, a British cannonball struck Nash in the hip while riding his horse. The same ball that injured him also killed his aide, Major James Witherspoon, the son of a signer of the Declaration. General Nash was carried from the field, but his wounds proved mortal and he died a few days later. The British also lost a general that day, about the same time as Cornwallis's divisions pushed on the American retreat, an American sniper shot British General James Agnew, who fell from his horse and died. I've talked about the two main divisions that fought at Germantown, but remember, General Washington had also sent two other divisions, one to march around the British left and the other to march around the British right in order to attack from behind. General Armstrong's Pennsylvania militia were assigned to attack the British left. They ran into a group of Hessian Jaegers near Wissahickon Creek. The Hessians pulled back across the bridge. Instead of charging them, though, the militia just brought up their cannons and fired from a distance. When the Hessians charged back across the bridge toward the militia, the militia pulled back even further and ended up retreating from the battle. General Smallwood's Maryland and New Jersey militia had been assigned to attack from behind the British right. Now They had the farthest to march of any of the soldiers, and they took so long to get into position that the battle was over before they made it there. Smallwood joined the Continental Retreat without really engaging the enemy. Overall for the battle, the British suffered about 70 killed and 450 wounded. The Americans lost about 150 killed and over 500 wounded, plus the nearly 450 that were captured, mostly from the 9th Virginia. The attack at Germantown showed that the Americans were still ready to fight even after the loss of Philadelphia, but beyond that, they accomplished little else. The Continental Army pulled back about a day's march from the British encampment at Germantown. Washington established a headquarters at White Marsh, while his army nursed its wounds and planned what to do next. They would remain there until December, when they would eventually pull back into winter quarters at Valley Forge. The British remained in possession of Philadelphia and Germantown for the next few weeks. General Howe then decided to abandon Germantown, pulling all of his forces into entrenchments closer to Philadelphia. It was there that the British and Hessians settled into their winter quarters. Now, some military analysts argue that the Battle of Germantown very easily could have been an American victory had Washington not got hung up on the Chew House and instead had taken most of Sullivan's division forward to meet up with Greene's division. Many also blame the bad luck of the fog causing confusion on the battlefield. Others argue that Washington drawing up such a complex plan of attack that required far too much coordinated action without communication was doomed to fail. I think much of this comes with the benefit of hindsight. 
The Continentals did not get the victory for which they had hoped, but they were able to retreat with most of their army intact and prepare to fight another day. Next week, British General Clinton, which is in New York City, ventures north to see if he can help with Burgoyne's northern army, which is by this time getting into some really serious trouble. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks, as always, to Trey Nance and George Davis for their support of the podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon, as well as Mike Hager at the Robert Morris Circle level. Thanks also to John McInnes for his support via PayPal. I also wanted to note with sorrow the passing of Bernard Balin a couple of weeks ago. Dr. Balin was a noted history author who has a long string of books written over 60 years. I've used many of them in writing this podcast. He was a history professor at Harvard for many decades and won numerous awards. Even though he lived a good long life, passing at age 97, he was still producing books as recently as five years ago. He contributed so much to the study of this era, and I just thought I should note his passing. This week, we heard the Battle of Germantown as the Continentals attempt to hit British-occupied Philadelphia. The battle at Germantown was one of many of what I would call successful losses for the Americans. The British held off the attacks for reasons I covered in the main show, but failed to do anything about the Continental Army remaining in the field. More importantly, the attack was a key event for the French. The British capture of Philadelphia caused some in France to fear that the British might be able to wrap up the war despite the loss at Saratoga. The attack at Germantown made clear to the French and to the rest of the world that Washington did not consider himself to be a defeated general and that he would continue to fight. This is actually what the French wanted. They were in no hurry for an American victory any more than they wanted a British victory. Rather, they wanted Britain entangled in an American quagmire while France attempted to recapture colonies in other parts of the world. Germantown made clear to France that the fight would go on between Britain and her colonies, and that's exactly what France wanted to see happen. There is a fun story about after the battle, the Continentals found a small dog, a fox terrier, 
It had a tag on it indicating that its owner was none other than General William Howe. Washington returned the dog to British lines under a flag of truce. It's a nice story about an act of kindness between two men who were at war. There's even a whole book written about the incident called General Howe's Dog, which uses the incident to look into the personalities of Generals Howe and Washington. You can find that book by Caroline Tigger on my blog for this episode, but that's not my book recommendation of the week. Rather, that honor goes to Germantown, a military history of the Battle for Philadelphia, October 4, 1777, by Michael C. Harris. You may recognize the name Harris since his book on the Battle of Brandywine was my book recommendation a few weeks ago when we covered that battle. I'm actually taking a bit of a chance on recommending this book about Germantown as I have not read it. The book is due to be released next month in mid-September 2020, and I've not yet been able to obtain an advanced copy. Even so, given his other works, I very much look forward to this one. It is reportedly over 500 pages long, so there should be plenty of details about this important battle. Harris's writing style in his earlier books is very narrative-driven and engaging for the reader. So, as I said, I'm looking forward to this one and pretty confident that it will live up to my expectations. So, for most of you, by the time you're listening to this, the book should be available, Germantown, A Military History, by Michael C. Harris. My online recommendation this week is a really old magazine article called The Battle of Germantown by Alfred C. Lambden. It was written for the battle's centennial celebration in 1877 for the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography. It's about 40 pages and gives a good summary of the battle. So, despite its age, if you want to read more about the battle, but not a whole book, then this is a good option. You can search for the article on archive.org or find it on JSTOR. I have direct links to both locations on my website or on my blog at blog.amrevpodcast.com. Finally, before leaving you for the day, I want to give a shout out to Founder of the Day. I recently did an interview with the host talking about how I got involved in podcasting and my interest in the American Revolution. It should be available by the time this episode goes public, and you should be able to find it on Founder of the Day's YouTube channel. In addition to his YouTube channel, he has a website called founderoftheday.com, and every day he produces a short video biography about a different founder usually only a few minutes long. What I really like about Founder of the Day is that most of his picks are pretty obscure but interesting individuals from the time of the nation's founding. I've enjoyed his short informational talks, and I've even heard about people that I didn't know about before he brought them to my attention. If you want, you can even catch his interview with me on the channel, so I suggest you give it a try. Search for Founder of the Day on YouTube, or go to founderoftheday.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.